You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joined in God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. This series that we've embarked upon is called God's Abundance in a Land of Scarcity, and we've talked about ad nauseum, and we will continue to talk about in various ways, um, just what we witnessed in Kenya and kind of the contrast of where we are here. But one of the things I saw in abundance in this land of scarcity is freedom. Freedom. It's a word that we cherish. It's almost a holy word, freedom, in in all of humanity and in every country, in free countries and in countries that aren't as free. Freedom has a sense of holiness to it. We long for it. We march for it. We protest for it. We vote for it. We fight for it. Our leaders promise it. But the reality of it is, how many of us are really satisfied with the freedom? The freedoms that we've been given. The freedoms that we've received. The freedoms that have been longed for, marched for, protested for, voted for, fought for. By definition, Kenya is a free country. But the corruption of its government and people in power, including the military and the police, oppress the people and create a gap between the rich and the poor, the have and the have-nots, that is so wide, as I've expressed before, that it's almost unbelievable. I mean, it's almost just unbelievable. And if our definition of freedom includes the right to pursue happiness and success, to own goods and land, to speak freely, then according to our definition of freedom, even though they are by definition a free country, Kenya is hardly free. Yet somehow I cannot help but think that there are the freest people I've ever met. Stories of freedom abound in this country. And we heard them over and over again. Stories like Emmanuel. Emmanuel Namunyu was a great husband, father, minister, educator, and so much more. Milton Jones, the president of CRF, is a mentor to me. And has been for a long time. He's a great friend of Emmanuel. And he says that when Emmanuel was in your presence, you were reminded that God was with you. And he saw the world differently, Emmanuel. Milt says there was a gleam in his eyes that was absolutely unique. It seemed that he was seeing things that other people just did not see. His look and his posture in the world was otherworldly. It was as if he were seeing into a realm of God that the rest of us hadn't quite seen. Milt was sitting in a CRF clinic one day. It had just opened at the Ring Road Orphans Day School in Kasumu, Kenya, where Jared Adiyamba, one of our missionaries, um, the work he planted. And while sitting there, Milt was told that a man, a school teacher, had made a very long journey to meet with him because he had heard that he helped orphan children. His name, of course, was Emmanuel. Emmanuel had started a little school that he called Iruli School. And he was personally trying to take care of 126 children who were AIDS orphans and war orphans from Mount Elgar. We'll talk about that next week. And he was taking care of these kids with this small teacher's pension and this little farm that he owned. But with the famine that was taking place in Kenya at the time, his crops were just not enough to feed the children, and as a result, the children were starving. He didn't know what to do with them. 
So Emmanuel continued to teach them about Jesus and share all that he and his wife and his boys had, and they just continued to pray. But he refused to ask them to leave. Everyone in the surrounding communities began to call these 126 AIDS orphans and war orphans Emmanuel's kids. And so Milt, when he caught word of this, asked Jared Adiambo, one of the directors, to go confirm that this tale was true. And indeed it was. But with much remorse, Milt had to tell Emmanuel that Christian Relief Fund was not expanding and starting new works. Because of the Great Recession in the United States at the time, CRF had lost sponsorships and money. Roughly 900 in Kenya alone. And Milt refused to ask those children to leave. And so CRF was trying to figure that out, and Milt was hustling all across the U.S. to try and get those children sponsored. So they could not take on new children, and so Milton basically told Emmanuel, I'm sorry, but no. And Milt says, immediately, Emmanuel looked at him and with a smile on his face, thanked him. Even though he didn't help him, he thanked him. And Emmanuel asked before he left if he could pray for CRF because Emmanuel said, it must really be hard for you in the United States. And so he prayed fervently that the Lord would bless CRF and help them through all the hard times that they were going through in the United States. And he prayed for our country's flourishing. In our bad times, even though they were nothing in comparison to Emmanuel's. But it didn't matter to Emmanuel because he was gracious and thankful. It didn't matter to Emmanuel because somehow Emmanuel was truly free. So Mill goes on to say that he later remembered this man when he was back in Amarillo and he especially remembered his name, Emmanuel. Because Emmanuel means what? God with us. And it was as if he was remembering that he looked into the eyes of Jesus and told Jesus, no. Because Milton remembered Matthew 25. As you do to the least of these, you do to me. And so Milton immediately repented and got in touch with Emmanuel and told him, we will take care of those 126 children. We will figure it out and trust that God will provide. And so he did. And now those 126 children have spanned not one school, but about 10 schools. About three or four different orphanages. And almost 2,000 or so children. Emmanuel passed away in 2013. But his son Wesley has continued to take up the work and follows in his father's footsteps. Wesley is a godly man. I mean, if he's anything like his father, and I've heard that he is, I just wished I could have known Emmanuel. And I've known Milt for years, but I can tell you this. Milt's known a lot of people. Milt's a well-known man, and he's had the privilege. I mean, Laura Bush knows Milton Jones. Like, he's a connected guy. I only say that to say this. I've never seen someone take Milton's heart and mind captive like Emmanuel did. God did something in and through Emmanuel 
that was eternal in and through so many people, and Wesley, his son, continues to work. What's interesting is when we were in Kenya and in that particular region, before we left that day, Wesley asked Milt um, if he could have about two more hours of his time before we went off to the other side of Kenya. And Milt said, what for? And Wesley said, well, there's a, a school and an orphanage you don't know anything about. <laughs> and Milt said, excuse me? He said, yeah. Milt said, I haven't seen any receivables or any kind of financial indication. He said, no, because I've paid for every bit of it. But we have 200 children there, and it's getting hard on me and my family to take care of them. Can you come and see if maybe we can partner together again? And so Milt was the first Mzungu any of these folks had ever seen. And this is him standing with all these children and adults he had never met. And you can see they were wearing orange in honor of Milton's presence. Yeah. Uh, Mzungu means uh, white person. Yeah, and um, yeah, so Milton obviously didn't make the same mistake twice and said, yeah, we'll figure it out. Wesley's like his father. Wesley's like Emmanuel. Oh, and by the way, true story, as so is the rest of this, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's like when somebody says, to tell you the truth, interpretation, I lie to you most of the other times. No preacher exaggeration. You know when Emmanuel was born? Christmas Day. Christmas Day. I guess God was trying to tell us something from the very beginning that God was going to do great things in this man. See, Emmanuel and Wesley were gripped by a different kind of freedom. Wesley doesn't make much money at all, but he was free enough to even take on 200 children himself, start a school, because he's got his master's degree and is an educator like his father. Cash in his pension and all he has to build an orphanage. And not only that, Wesley has planted probably 10 churches, and he's never asked anybody outside of his own family and the local people to fund the churches. And Wesley and his father have captured this sense of freedom that is upheld by a reality, a truth far greater than individualistic success or rights and comforts guaranteed by some government document or national security. It was the kind of freedom that led these men to sacrifice all they have for the good of others. Like his father, Wesley spends his own money buying new fields, starting new orphanages, building new churches. He's not a rich man, not hardly, but he's a free man. In a country that's not free. And he's free because he's come to know what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. And he knows what that means. And, and this freedom, the kind that motivates a person to live beyond the boundaries and limitations of social or national freedoms, is the kind of freedom that actually Jesus invites all of us into. It's not extraordinary, but it's extraordinary. See, in John 8, two chapters before John 8, Jesus had all his disciples bail on him. But then he gets to John 8, and he finds himself in a conversation with his believers, with his disciples. Verse 30, it says this, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, all right, these are people who said, I put my hope in you, I trust in you, I believe you. I'm going to follow you. And so Jesus looks at his followers and he says, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth. Read it with me. And the truth will set you free. But listen to their response. Whoa, oh, oh. That's in the Greek. They just didn't have a word for it. The oh. We're descendants of Abraham, they said. 
And we've never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you'll become free? And Jesus said, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the son has set you free, you will really be free. See, our country reminds us often that without freedom, there is no sacrifice. And that is true, but not in the way we often mean. When I think of Emmanuel and countless others I know who have trusted God to change lives in profound ways, I see that the only way they are able to sacrifice their lives for others is because they have found a freedom deeper than anything that can be given to them by the world. They sacrifice because they're free. You see it in the cross. Christ gave up his life because he was free to not consider equality with God as something to be held on to, Philippians chapter 2. He was free to give up his life. He was free to love and he was free to die so we could be free to do the same. To die to the slavery of death and live freely. Live freely our lives of loves as sons and daughters of God. But see, without truth there is no freedom. And see, Emmanuel and Wesley, they believed in truth. The truth of God's provision, the truth of God's love, the truth of God's self-giving love, the truth of God's presence, the truth of God's promise that he'd never abandoned or forsaken the orphan and the, and the fatherless, the truth of God's provision that he had given birth to this church through this risen Christ that at some point in some way was going to rise up and do the right thing. Emmanuel and Wesley believed in the truth that is Jesus Christ who is the risen Lord. And that if a blood-stained cross really existed and an empty tomb really existed, that there was going to be no famine that was going to have the last word. See, freedom becomes, comes to us not because of sacrifice, if we're Christians. Freedom comes to us because of truth. And that's what Jesus seems to think. Which is why Jesus says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, if you continue in the truth, if you trust what I say about life and that it's real and you hold on to that above all things, if you never mistake Caesar's lordship as being better than my lordship, you'll be all right. If you hold on to these things, if you'll never think that Rome's going to give you the kind of peace you long for, because that's the context here, and if you continue in my word and what I'm trying to say to you about life and what's real, if you continue in that, if you make every step in that, if you align your lives with that, if you place your hope and dreams in that, if you allow your priorities to be organized around that, about what I've said is true about life lived in this society, Jesus says, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples. You're following me. And you will know the truth, say it with me, and the truth will set you free. But we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been enslaved. Which is interesting because they had spent 400 years in slavery, but I guess historical revisionism existed then just like it does today. How can you say we'll be really free? And Jesus says, you guys have freedom all wonky. You're living in the reign of sin and death. And everyone who commits a sin is a slave to that. And you're not getting out. In every world order, in every 
promise the world makes is going to be made within the construct and the context of this reign of sin and death. And at the end of the day, its best offer of freedom is it going to make you free. You're a slave to sin. It's a bigger deal than just uh, who's sitting in the White House. I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not remain in the household of forever, but a son, but a son and a daughter. One to whom the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one to whom overcomes death, one to whom offers salvation to the world. When he calls you son and daughter, not even hell itself can reverse that. You're free. It's the truth of the gospel. But why did the followers of Jesus not live freely? Why did these believers miss the invitation of freedom? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 33 and verse 37. We're descendants of Abraham. In other words, verse 37, Jesus has a response and says, I know you're a descendant of Abraham, but you, were, but you were trying to kill me because, say it with me, my word is not welcome among you. You just don't want to do what I say. You just don't want to trust me. You think somehow Moses was Lord. You think somehow Abraham was Lord. You think somehow Caesar is Lord. You think somehow some new leader and ruler of your country is Lord. You think somehow your country itself is going to give you the promised land that only I promised. They heard the words, the truth will set you free, but it fell on deaf ears because they believed they were already free. And they were incapable of seeing the true freedom that God offered in Christ. Think about Kenya and people like Emmanuel and Wesley, and I cannot help but think about my own country. I can't help but read this text a little differently with me in view. And you can choose to join me in the reading or not, but it's how I read it this week. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Christians who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, we're descendants of democracy, we answered. And we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. We aren't enslaved to anyone. How can you say we'll become free? And Jesus' answer hadn't changed. I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, and a slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does. So if the son sets you free, you'll really be free. I know you're descendants of democracy, but you're trying to explain my teachings away because my word is not welcome to you. Love your neighbor as you love yourselves, Jesus says. Do for others what you would have them do unto you, Jesus says. Give to all who ask without expectation of return because it's more blessed to receive, or blessed to give than receive, he says. Jesus teaches us the poor in spirit are blessed for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. The gentle are blessed for they will inherit the earth. The merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy. The peacemakers are blessed for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's what Jesus teaches us. And that's very different. And so Jesus says, if you continue in the things that I say, if you continue in my word, John 8, you're my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Because if the Son has set you free, you will be really free. Fred, if you continue to trust me and align your life with me, your hopes, your dreams. Let go of the rights you think are better than the rights I give you as a son of God. 
prioritize your life around my promises and my lordship. Submit to my lordship and place your hope in my lordship above all other people, places, and things. And then you'll be free. You'll be really free. Later in the story, Jesus reminds him that his words of freedom and truth are legitimate because he says in verse 58, probably the mic drop of the text. I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was. I am. There has never been anyone more powerful than me, Jesus says. There will never be anyone more powerful than me, Jesus says. No one will ever be able to offer you what I can offer you, Jesus says. Stop believing. Otherwise, Jesus summons. He summons us to an understanding of freedom far different and much deeper than the freedoms we divide over today. Maybe when those of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord decide to align our lives, hopes, and dreams with what Jesus says is true about life and not what party politics or partisanism says is true about life, then maybe then our understanding of freedom will change. And maybe then as people will have a peacemaking, hope-dealing, love-filled voice in a divided and polarized society. But until then... We will just add to the polarization and perpetuate the division if we start believing that somebody else can offer us something better than Jesus. We can't split allegiances. Wesley and Emmanuel refused to split allegiances. They refused to let their government tell them that they can't do certain things because they knew that Christ had made them free. They confess that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We need truth to be free. And we need Jesus to have truth. When I was studying for my doctorate at Biblical Theological Seminary, it was a very diverse group of people. And in this room was a lot of Koreans, particularly South Koreans, and people from China. I was a minority in my doctorate class, which was quite refreshing. This Chinese pastor, we had gone on and on in our, in our class. There was a handful of Americans in there. and We had gone on and on in our class with the bishop of the Anglican church, who was our professor, so kind of a big deal, this guy, about all the different things going on in our country and what the government's legislating and all that. I don't I mean, Y'all should know me, like I wasn't contributing, I was ready to move on, all right, like I, I'm de- let's just talk about something else, you know, like they're going on and on and I'm just, you know, popping Tylenol and Pepto and just listening to, and you know, marriage and marriage equality and all these different things and you could see the room started to turn hot. Well this, I'm telling you, five foot two, thin little pastor from China stood up. He spoke, you think I speak fast. And he raised his hand, but he stood up first. And he said, can I speak? He hadn't said a word. He said, in my country, we can't have these conversations in public. Or we get fined or tortured. He said, I've been tortured, I can handle the torture. The worst part is when we get fined, because that affects our families. He said, and one day we were studying the Bible under candlelight in a 
dark room in the basement of a house and the police busted into the door and said, who's the pastor? And he said, before I could even raise my hand and say, I'm the pastor, many men in the church stood up and said, I'm the pastor. And immediately the police wheeled all of them out except for the pastor. And they came back. And he said, next time that happened, he immediately stood up as quickly as he could and said, I'm the pastor. So that his flock wouldn't be flogged for organizing this gathering of Christians. And then he stopped. And he had all of our attention. And he took two steps away from his chair and he turned around to the room. He said, you know why you're all called pastors in your country? He said, because you have a degree. You know why I'm called a pastor in mine? He said, because I sacrifice much. He said, but you know what? My church members are more free than yours. Because while you're arguing over these things and rights and all this freedom that you're given, we're dying for our faith. And we're doing so willingly. We're saying, I'm the pastor. Because we're free, he said. So I typed up my resignation letter. <laughs> I'm serious. I just, I was that big, like class was over. Like the, the bishop of the church said, class is over. Like, go home. Lesson heard. The freedom Christ offers is bigger than the freedom we fight over. My encouragement to you is hold on to the freedoms that God has given, that you already have. And then do what Paul says in Galatians 5, final text. You were called to be free. Just don't use the freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. See, another word for freedom is love, biblically speaking. Because we're called to be free, not to argue over our rights and our privileges. We're called to be free to love our neighbor. Because if we ever end up in a room where we're worshiping God under candlelight, the question is, will we be free? We can learn from our Chinese brothers and sisters. We can learn from our Kenyan brothers and sisters and say with a resounding, yes, we will be free. Because Christ has afforded our freedom. And we are free to love. We're free to love 200 orphans. We're free to love 200 enemies. We're free to love 200 neighbors. We're free to love because Christ has set us free. And if he set us free and we know the truth, the truth of Christ and the truth of a kingdom that's never going to be in trouble, the truth that every other kingdom in the world would be a footnote in the pages of history, the truth that the kingdom of God is never going to shake, fail or frail or fall, we'll be free. Let's be free. And let's learn from the Wesleys and the Emmanuel's and the Chinese pastors that I don't even know his name. Let's just learn from Christ and be free.